Welcome, everybody, to the Animator's Guide to Virtual Reality. My name is Rick Delishney here in Peterborough, Ontario, Canada, and my guest today is Sean Stevens. I'm just going to give you a little bit of a rundown on what Sean's um, what, what Sean's going to bring to the show. I think it's actually something very unique that I'm really, really excited about talking about because this. Uh, <clears throat> well, let me give you a bit of his his, uh, his bio. He's a, gr- growing up in Windsor, Ontario. Sean was involved in theater from an early age. Before he could walk, he was often found backstage at the local high school, uh, musical productions directed directed by his father, and his favorite songs were often found in musical theater. During his school years, he was involved in theater tech and ultimately graduated in 1999 with a Bachelor of Applied Arts in Theater Technical Production from Ryerson University in Toronto. In 1998, he joined Christy Lights, starting uh, in their Toronto warehouse and eventually becoming a lead technician and supervisor for both the rental and sales uh, departments. In the years since, through Christy Lights, Sean has worked on lighting for television, uh, film, concerts, and corporate events across North America uh, for clients such as Intel, TD Canada Trust, GM, and bands such as Great Big C, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Great Big C, The Guess Who, The Tragical Hip, and live television, including WrestleMania, The Junos, and Much Music Video Awards. I am really, really happy, and uh, we'll get into a few of the re- more, few more, more reasons why I'm happy to have Sean on the show. Sean, hello. Welcome to the Animator's Guide to Virtual Reality. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me on the show. This is really exciting to have you on for, for a number of reasons. Um, I've been hinting at having you on for a while because um, I, there's, there's a number of reasons why I think you will give a very valuable perspective for animators and animation directors that are thinking about moving into virtual reality. And I'm just going to jump right into it. The, the biggest challenge that I think uh, directors of animation and VR have, one of the biggest challenges anyway, is that we don't know where the audience is going to be. And I know through working in theater, and I know you having worked in theater, uh, uh, you don't always have control over where the audience is going to be or where the audience is going to be looking, or sometimes you need to change where the audience is going to be looking. And these are problems that live events and theater has been uh, working on for hundreds of years, really. Um, well, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about sort of your you know your background in 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 terms of designing. There's so many directions I could take this in, but I just think it's fascinating. I want to get your perspective on this. I mean, what do you, what do you tell me about what you know of virtual reality and and sort of the the parallels or maybe some of the challenges that you've overcome that might an animation director might have to deal with. Well, a lot of it comes down to uh, again controlling your audience, and as you said in VR, you lose that control uh, to varying degrees depending on how you're virtual reality setup is working, whether you've got them on rails or whether they're free to to move around as they may. Um, and so you need to uh, both allow them to look anywhere and give them something to see, but also bring them back and control them so that uh, given the opportunity, they can and will focus on the action uh, or the key events that you need them to look on. Um, and that's something that happens a lot on uh, live events, especially, but theater in the round Mm. as well. But I mean, on in an event like tonight, we've got the Oscars happening uh, while we're busy doing this. And you've got a whole lot of cameras who can be looking at any direction pretty much at any time within the limits of their rehearsing. Uh, and you've got to make sure that when that camera is pointing at the stage or at the audience or out on the red carpet outside, 
there's something to look at, and it's well lit and uh, interesting for the audience to see. That's a really good point you mentioned. <clears throat> Excuse me, interesting for the audience to see because actually, we when I when I first reached out to you, I think this is sort of awards season right now, and and we were chatting a little while ago when the Grammys were up, and the Grammys had multiple stages, and you were telling me a little bit about how important it is to not only light and direct the audience in terms of all the different stages. But even lighting the audience is kind of important. Absolutely. Um, uh, from, a, from a video director or, or a TV point of view, um, nothing is worse to a camera than seeing a pit of blackness or an unlit audience. Um, so if, you're, if your camera turns and pans across the audience and there are chunks that aren't lit, um, it becomes a black void. And uh, so in order to uh, compensate for that, you have to have at least some level of lighting um, and, and plan for a level of lighting over those areas, even if you don't necessarily want anyone focusing on them. Right. You don't want it to disappear into, you know, the abyss uh, if someone does look there. Uh, and that's one of the things where you need to have that, that base level of lighting everywhere someone can look. And then from there, work up and build and become more involved on the important parts of lighting to direct the audience in the, in the uh, in direction and the areas you wish them to look by transitioning uh, in your various, uh, the various aspects of a light that you have control over um, can all be used to catch the eye, draw focus and draw attention uh, from the uh, viewer wherever they may have distracted themselves in looking. Yeah, <clears throat> it's also important too to be careful when you're lighting the audience to not overlight it. Yeah. Absolutely, you you're, you want to start off with with a base level, uh, which is sort of the 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 minimum lighting that anything would be anywhere. Um, to again to avoid that that black dropout. Um, yeah, and everything about and everything else is on top of that. So you have to you also have to realize you know again with. If you're looking TV or cameras, there's a point where your cameras just can't take anymore and uh, will just start peaking. And mm-hmm. so that's that's your upper limit. Yeah. And you need to balance to balance in there. Um, uh, I guess for animation, you don't want to start crushing white no. and, uh, and just going all pure white uh, in that set. So you've got there's – a, there's a range you need to work in, and you just have to remember that those ranges aren't full black and full white. It's it's narrower than that. Yeah. Um, now, in, sorry to cut you off there. And, and also, we're not really going to get into audio on today's show, but I'll just speak from my own experience as as, as a video editor as, uh, in, in past careers. I know it's also important. You're talking about um, avoiding uh, dropouts in terms of the audience. If a camera pans and it's just black. I will say this: <clears throat> audio is actually really. Very important as well that you that you that you measure that and you're aware of it when you're when you're in a in a theater when you're in a theater and things are happening you have this ambient audio that you're that you're aware of and it's helping to draw you uh, in one direction or another I'm going I'm going somewhere with this just just let me work this through for a moment when you're watching a televised version of that unless you specifically mic the audience. You're not going to hear anything going on in the audience. You won't hear the clapping, and we've all heard the weird, like when a, a, an MC will tell a joke, and if the mics, if, if if the audience isn't mic'd, it just sounds like a dead room. 
Yeah, that, that's sort of the audio that. equivalent of what you just said. And it's it's actually I think you, you, as an animation director in VR needs to be aware of that. Um, and again, we won't spend too much time on audio, but I just wanted to – there's a there's an equivalent to audio and, and, and lighting as well and that you, you have to compensate for it. You have to maybe put some audio back in that <clears throat> isn't necessarily a part of the action that's right in front of you visually, but it needs to be there to help flesh out the whole experience and maybe draw you through the, the story or literally draw you through to say where you need to go next, what you need to interact with next. Absolutely. You've always got to have – or think about your room tone. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Audio guys call it um, to sort of keep that balance. The same way you need that room lighting level as a minimum, that room tone is is going to help give people the same sort of key. Um, I, I'm sure I'm sure someone will, but I, I I would wouldn't doubt for a second that it would be possible to create a VR experience um, that was essentially a blind person's experience um, with careful crafting of, uh, you know, stereophonic multi-directional 3D sound um, that I'm sure someone will probably be jumping on already if, if it hasn't been done yet. That's incredible. Where there isn't a, where there isn't a, visual, a visual concept. It's, it may be a niche market, but as an art project, I can definitely see the, uh, the benefits in it. I know your strength is letting, and I promised I wouldn't spend time on audio, but you've brought up a really good point, actually. No, that's, no, absolutely. That's actually fascinating. And that, just the thought of that, of course, that makes perfect sense. A, a virtual reality stereophonic experience that's not necessarily triggered by visuals, but through sound. But it, it does really feed into, into what you're here to talk about too is is creating the whole experience and 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 lighting a scene um <clears throat> really in traditional animation we use multi-pass uh renderings to sort of add and remove lights and specular highlights and make a scene look a certain way because we have our our camera locked off in the layout process and we know where our camera is going to be so we can adjust our lights and even make our lights you know only visible to certain objects there's all these tricks but yeah, lighting realism isn't exactly been the the animator's strong point, <laughs> uh, and, and that's been allowed by the uh, yeah. by the limited uh, viewpoint of the uh, the consumer. Uh, and with well, as you get into VR, you you lose the control of that limited viewpoint. And I think if uh, someone continues trying to light in a traditional manner, they're going to quickly discover that as a viewer moves around, some Really strange effects will be seen um, that will just sort of uh, cause some dissonance in the viewer. Explain, explain that. What do you mean by that? As you well, I, uh, humans are really good at, at looking at light and seeing light, and even if they can't um, verbalize it, they can I, conceptualize light and understand how it works. Um, you know, we've been exposed to uh, assuming <laughs> assuming we have sight. Um, we have been exposed to light from birth and we know that it travels in straight lines and it, it reflects and it bounces and in certain ways. Um, even if we've never studied it, some things look natural uh, and some don't. And we also get used to a little bit more of the cartoony. You know, we're brought up with cartoons from a pretty early age and there's some allowance for that. But as you start to move around a scene that has been rendered in a, uh, uh, a way where you're fi- you're expecting a fixed view mm-hmm. and you move behind that because you've allowed certain lights to do certain things, you know, certain lights are only for shadows or certain lights are only doing um, specular highlights. Uh, as you move away from the angle of that, that, that light is hitting, the effects become 
odd. Um, the, the brain just sort of realizes that something is not right. It looked great when I was over here, but as I look yeah. over here, it's just uh, it's it's a new uncanny valley, really, for for animators, I think. Um, and uh, I think you you have to either embrace uh, the lack of realism. I mean, there's nothing saying we can't we can't stick stick with the cartoon world and right. and and go with that. Um, but you have to you know commit and. Uh, and still think about your lighting, even in a cartoon method, all the way around. Or you need to think about the fact that, okay, the audience wants a little bit more realism, even if even if the content isn't realism, even if you're still lighting, um, insert Disney trademark character here, uh, they know <laughs> that you know the sun comes in from here, mm-hmm. and it can bounce off the floor here, and there's a desk light over here that's providing light. Uh, and as they move around the scene those lights remain fixed in space and their effects do as well. So if you walk around to the far side of a character who's lit from by the sun, that side of him will be in shadow because the sun's uh, opposite. Um, and, and if you don't, if, if all of a sudden you, you know, the sun's behind a character and there's no other sources of light and yet you see him fully lit. Hmm. It just seems bizarre to, to yeah. the human mind. <clears throat> For sure. Talk us through some, if you were light, uh, when you're lighting a live event or if you were lighting a film set, can you go over some of the typical kinds of lights that you would use? And I, I'm looking for names and sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, names and uh, the use of those certain kinds of lights. I just want to build a sort of a, a vocabulary so we're all kind of talking the same language. Well, I mean, you've got, uh, basically there's... Uh a limited number of lights. They're, they're in various sizes and, and a billion different uh, brands, etc. But you've got uh, what is normally known as your ellipsoidal, which is uh, what most people will think of as a spotlight. Mm-hmm. Uh, it generally has a hard edge. Um, you can use gobos or cookies uh, into it, which basically create a, a shape in the light, you know, adding, adding in shadow to, pro- to pro- project a pattern with that light. Um, and that's where you'll normally get. So you, it starts off as a as a nice sharp circle, and you can adjust it uh, and shape it. Uh, but it technically it normally has that that hard edge to it, and mm-hmm. it will give uh, harder shadows on uh, whatever hits it. And of course, you um, know that would be called a, a shadow map, or yeah, there's different names for it with different yeah, software. Absolutely. And I want to point out too, just for the listeners, like Sean does have a background in 3D animation as well. So it, it certainly, I've, Sean, I've, I've dabbled. I've dabbled in in, <laughs> in a few in a few consumer and and uh, and high end pro level softwares, but I don't know if background is. <laughs> oh, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Let's stick with the uh, the real world because and and, and and we'll make some connections as we go. But definitely, sure, absolutely. Uh, and then next, you move to uh, what is a Fresnel. Um, or a wash light, right? Um, and that's uh, a larger light, um, which gives you a larger surface area producing the light, um, which allows that light to wrap around. Um, as an, an, any animator will know, you know, a point light gives you a different, a, shar- a sharper, sharper shadow than um, a large a, a spotlight. In uh, if you're if you're adding, you know, basic lights from an animation point of view. Uh, and what a Fresnel is, is it's a larger or an area light that gives you that softer shadow. It doesn't have any hard edges, and it's um, what you'd expect from, you know, a bare bulb in a room, sort of, you know, that, that light sort of wrapping around things. Um, and then from there, those are the two basic kinds of light that 
for the most part, fulfill all your needs in various sizes um, and with different accessories. Uh, and then you move on to, you know, the moving versions of those and smaller and larger versions. But with a, with a spotlight ellipsoidal and a washlight or Fresnel, uh, once you, once you get those two, the rest of it is mostly just, uh, adjusting sizes and, uh, playing with the different, uh, aspects of that, of those lights. And that's important. To create different effects. So it's important to know that they're, these are, these are directional lights. So, um, <clears throat> a lot of times in animation, we experiment with different, different kinds of lights. And so now to take that, those real world examples now in animation, one trick that we, we use, and I'm, I'm actually, I don't know, I, I'm curious to get your feedback on this, but I think global illumination is actually a really good way to light a VR scene in that Absolutely. it's not so directional and it kind of fills out the light and it's much more natural. Explain what that is and how that's a little I'm, different. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of uh, image-based lighting or HDRI lighting or uh, global illumination. Um, and uh, it was actually one of the reasons I started uh, – doing a bunch of interesting HDRI photography at one point uh, was to learn how that worked. Um, and essentially what it is, is it's taking an image. Um, oftentimes it's an image of a real scene uh, and everything around you. So it's a 360 degree image. Um, normally or ideally it's a 32 bit uh, high dynamic range image, yeah. uh, which you can't really see, but the computer knows how to deal with. And what that allows for is the uh, varying brightness of the image to be mapped into a light source within the software uh, so that you are essentially coming in or working with a uh, bringing that real world lighting, all those different sources all around you, the reflections, the sun, the different light sources into a usually a dome environment uh, or box environment around your scene. Right. Uh, and it's a fantastic way to get you a base level of lighting, give you some things to reflect. Yep. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, that can be tweaked and tuned and that can actually be as serve as that basic level of lighting even, um, if you, if you want to, that you can build on to create, you know, drama and, and, uh, action on top of. Right. It's really important to to have these these uh, tools uh, at your disposal when you're when you're lighting a VR scene, and I think that's in particular a, a good one to have available for you because when you don't know where the camera is going to be, where the viewer is going to be, um, uh, the nice thing about global lighting is uh, is that it just feels natural. If if there's a window over here and it's, there's a bright sun coming in, and uh, then that's where the light's coming in from, and that's great. And it's bouncing off a red wall, and there's a bit of a red color to it. That's great. We we understand that. That's very natural. That's another. I mentioned another light source that you don't really contend with, or maybe you do. I don't know. The sun. I mean, how do you deal with that? Do you do you take the sun into account when you're lighting a live event? I mean, it's kind of a in a in an ideal world, uh, no. Um, most most events are either inside or done at night, specifically to avoid the sun. But as a photographer, it's something I'm I'm familiar with, um, and reproducing it is something that we're often called to do. Um, we we specifically work at night to avoid it, and then 
will be we're asked to reproduce the sun in one form or another uh, because that's what the director actually wants. Right. They just don't want to use the real sun because, well, it never cooperates. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I want to ask so, you if you could explain sort of in, uh, in, in, in ways that maybe – I know I would get kind of hung up on the technology, but just explain color temperature – and if you're, if we're going for like live lighting, that is something that you need to take into consideration. And and it's really interesting when you see animation that takes advantage of of color temperature and starts to play with mixing uh, 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 live lights with incandescent lights and fluoros. And just explain what I mean by color temperature and and how an animator Absolutely. might work with that. Um, color temperature is uh, increasingly becoming more and more uh, at least something people are familiar with, even if they don't really understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the official definition of color temperature is, is the temperature, the, the color of light given off of a black body radiator at a certain temperature Kelvin, which means nothing <laughs> to anybody. Um, Hold on, people, don't go away. <laughs> yeah, don't go away. That's that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> what it means, though, is uh, your color temperature, which is given in degrees Kelvin, because right. it is technically a temperature measurement, mm-hmm. um, the cooler it gets the warmer it feels to people, that, that that warm, cozy feeling that people get at sunset, that is a low color temperature. Low. Um, just, what's the number? Or what is the number? And so if you're, looking, if you're looking for something, you're, uh, an old tungsten household light is uh, 3,000 or 3,200 Kelvin, and that's your normal uh, sort of – that's the, the default tungsten, warm, sunset sort of uh, color. Right. Um, and then if you want a sort of – What's considered a pure, pure whiter light, uh, we move up to 6,500 Kelvin, 6,500 degrees Kelvin, and that's uh, in your daylight range. Uh, it's sort of the upper end of the daylight range. Yeah. Uh, between it, it, it varies depending on what you're working with, but those, those are sort of the two ends of the range that most people are familiar with. Your daylight whites up at 6,500 uh, Kelvin and your uh, warm evening cools, your your household bulbs uh, that no one really <laughs> – we're not even allowed to have in some countries anymore uh, down at 30 uh, – at 3,000 degrees Kelvin. Um, and then you just have to understand that as you mix multiple color temperatures um, – it works just as if you're actually putting a color in front of your light. Um, you know, it becomes an orange and a blue um, uh, as as much as if you just put in a color filter in front of your your gel. If you mix two fixtures with different color temperatures, that's right. So there's two things that we do in the film world to compensate for that. We either add uh, if we have a, a mixed lighting situation, we're shooting indoors and there's sunlight coming in, we would add uh, an amber or yellow filter. Yeah, we we don't say yellow, you know, <laughs> amber <laughs> yep. filter to uh, dial that color down. And then when we do a white balance, <clears throat> which is a feature of the camera, we tell the camera what white is supposed to be, and then everything looks consistent. Um, not so much the other way around. When you're outside shooting, it's kind of hard to – well, no, you would you would use lights that have a, a higher color temperature so it all kind of matches. When you start mixing color temperature lights, it just looks really unprofessional. But it can also have an interesting um, dramatic uh, effect as well. You've probably noticed – I'm saying you to the, the listener. When you look – watch a film um, where you have a really stylized nighttime scene. And when you see a house on the horizon, let's say, we all know that that house will seem to 
uh, project uh, a yellow light. And like, what is that? Well, that's actually the, the color temperature. That's our eye acclimatizing to what we think is the dominant color, which is in this case, we're outside at say dusk and everything kind of looks blue sort of, and the inside lights look yellow. And this is actually a great effect to, if you if you want to create uh, an interesting look, it doesn't work the other way around though, eh, Sean? I mean, think if you have a predominantly outside scene and start bringing incandescent lights in to, to light it up, it, it no, if you're, it, it generally it generally doesn't. Um, the sort of the nice the nice way you can get into things like that. Um, if you're thinking again, we're shifting over to, to still imagery for a minute. Hmm. Uh, if you're shooting a portrait of someone in front of a window, a giant window, um, you can shoot a uh, that'll be a, a a daylight color temperature coming in through that window. But you can also warm up the other side with a uh, a cooler color temperature or a, a warmer colored light. Um, and just sort of get that contrast. And if you're careful and you're, 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 you can actually get quite an interesting dynamic as the color shifts across the face. Um, if you want to look at some, some fantastic, uh, I, you know, mixing of color images, uh, I'm always willing to recommend Blade Runner to everyone. Um, ah. the, a lot of the color, a lot of the, uh, the lighting mixtures in that predominantly night movie, um, They've got a lot of sort of, you know, your daylights, your neons, your, um, the headlights, the, uh, the, the sodium vapor lights. Um, there's a whole lot of really rich, different color temperature lights used. Oh, I am so, you, Sean, I'm actually tingling right now because as you're saying it, I'm, you're absolutely right. That is a, a smorgasbord of mixed lighting sources. And collide and, and mixing it with other lighting sources in the same shot. And I'm even thinking about sort of the sunset scene at the Tyrell Corporation with the, with the, with Owl and and what they did with the, the that inc- intense seconds before sunset moment. You know. Yep. Yep. And then you trigger that with the computer displays that were this bizarre kind of cold light. Um, wow. Oh, and I'm listen. I'm going to pause the podcast and watch Blade Runner. You just hang on. I'll be back in a couple hours, and then we'll pick. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> but it, it it is important to think about. It. I mean, you mentioned right there the the warm sunset, mm. and then the strange uh, the strange computer interfaces. Um, a director can really use that color temperature to affect um, how the viewer is looking at things yeah. as much as they can intensity. Um, because again, the human brain really likes that warm. Um, we're just we're trained to that warm, that cozy. Yeah. Yeah cool color temperature and when you're surrounded by that sort of feeling when you introduce something of the higher color temperature that it becomes that bluey cold mm. uh, industrial uh, antiseptic almost feeling um, and can be a shocking contrast uh, for the viewer that can really catch the eye and draw the draw the viewer in um, or or just make the viewer uncomfortable if that's what uh, the goal is um, the power, the power of color temperature, just modifying color temperature without any other, uh, features of a light, um, can have that power. Very exciting. You can see we've touched on something that's actually very, very, uh, d- a dramatic tool almost that a director of animation can use to, uh, uh adjust the mood or set the mood or set the tone. You touched on drawing the, the, the viewer in a certain direction. I want to come back to that actually, because that's, that's really the big part of, of why, um, I asked you to come on is, 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 uh, how do you use lighting as, as, as a, as an example of, uh, 
of uh, helping to draw the audience's attention. Have you had a chance to see a short interactive VR film called Buggy Night? I haven't, unfortunately. Let me just play a little clip just to remind everyone. It's actually a really, really charming soundtrack. Okay, so that film is Buggy Night, and um, there's actually not a lot going on audio-wise, so I just want to set the tone. And, of course, anyone who has seen it, this is a, a charming animation of, of some bugs that are crawling around the forest, and a, uh, they, they're being uh, um, um, picked off by a predator. Let's just put it that way, and no spoilers here. But it's a charming film, and it really has um, set a new benchmark in VR uh, real-time animation, which is really what we're here to talk about. And the reason I'm bringing it up is they haven't they use they use light as an incredible tool. It's a very simple tool, and what happens is uh, it, this this whole film was told from the point of view of you as maybe an explorer with a flashlight in the middle of the night. And these bugs they scurry they scurry off and they're kind of congregating off in the corner and they're but it's up to you. You have to find them, and you find them by moving around this forest type thing, and then you're using your flashlight. And once the flashlight shines on the bugs. The light is actually a trigger for the animation to kick in, and they scurry off into the forest, and then the next scene unfolds. And it's actually a, it's it's wonderful, and I really liked how they used light as a as a device to trigger animation, because that's a big part of of interactive animation is um, the, the characters in the film sometimes have to wait for you, because VR you don't necessarily know which way you're looking, and it's kind of up to you to kind of find the next character or find the character that you may have lost. And when you find him, in this case, you find him with your, with your, with your flashlight. I thought that was just, just wonderful. And it really got me thinking about using light as a tool to uh, direct people's attention. Um, <clears throat> so going back to theater and going back to say a, a live event, I mean, you know, we loud, loud, bright lights, light, light, loud sounds. What are some of the tricks and techniques that you would use in live, live theater to maybe draw people's attention in one way or another? Well, you've got, I mean, your basic uh, lighting uh, forms uh, is uh, the direction of light, or, or and which also includes being able to move the light. Um, you know, in, in modern and modern performances and modern productions, uh, a whole lot of money is spent on moving lights that uh, can do multiple jobs, but can also move uh, uh, not only just point in different directions, but move around. Um, and as we all wow. know, moving. Is going to catch the is going to catch the eye. Okay, so I'm showing uh, my age. So I, I, I the the, non, the notion of a move. How is the light moving? Uh, all sorts of fancy robotics, basically. Essentially, you've, you know, it's a it's a light on a yoke. Um, hmm. um, and then just as it's given uh, intensity controls, it also has other controls for intensity of x and y um, parameters. Um, <laughs> and so it can it can wiggle around and move around just as if someone was uh, standing behind it. Pointing it, uh, pointing it. Um, so the the directional light is is pointing in is an, is an important uh, sort of cue that you can use, but also moving that light along is something that that catches the eye and draws it. Just as uh, having your character walk across the screen draws the eye with it, mm-hmm. having that light move across the screen can also draw the eye. Um, as well as direction, we get intensity. Um, and as we talked about earlier, you know, you, you want that base level, but on top of that level, you need to be able to, to punch it up and bring it up 
in order to sort of catch the eye and pull it away from the darker things around it. Um, if you're in a, in a room that's, you can see everything and, you know, you, there's a bunch of people there, but all of a sudden from the sky above, a sharp beam of light pinpoints someone in the audience. Yeah. It's almost impossible for the human eye not to, to move to that. They may drift away if it doesn't catch their interest, mm-hmm. but the idea of the human eye not immediately going to that bright light is, you know, hard to imagine. Um, again, it's just one of those trainings and it's, uh, goes back to the, the, the reptilian brain and, you know, danger <laughs> senses and things. Um, a, something that's moving or something that's, that's caught our eye and is, is dramatic, our brain needs to check out so that we can make sure it's safe. Again, I'm actually going to reference uh, Blade Runner one more time in that, and, and, and address a problem that we have in VR with directing the audience's attention. In Blade Runner, they did a really consistent use of key lighting eyeballs. And, yes. and I'm thinking about that in particular, uh, where the, the audience is looking at something, and we're and she, she may be backlit, but her eye, her pupils are, are lit in such a way that we know that what we should be looking at is is behind us, perhaps, and, and the light is actually casting, it, it, it reflecting in the eyeballs of the characters, and that that may also prompt us as a VR animation director or as a VR uh, viewer, that would prompt us to turn around. <laughs> yeah, or and, as a, and as see a, what uh, she's seeing. Yeah, I, I, that's that's an interesting one because catch lights um, are kind of universal. I mean, whether you're in film or in still photography or in animation, um, if there isn't a slight reflection of something, of light, of, of something in the eye, the eye seems dead. You know, thank uh, you for correcting me. It's actually catch light. You're absolutely right. What not key light? Fine. Thank you. Um, but yeah, if, if there's no catch light, the eye and the person <laughs> whose eye it is looks dead. Um, it's, it's pretty hard to get around it. If there, if there isn't something in that eye, that little speck, um, that gives the viewer the idea that the, the feeling that that character is alive. Um, and that's something that's a little tougher when you're in VR because normally, you know, when you've got that fixed viewpoint, you'll have some sort of light source at or near the camera right. directed at the, uh, the character's face, um, that allows that catch light to appear. But now as you move the camera randomly, uh, it, you, we, it may come to the point where essentially uh, the viewer has a headlight of some sort that exists specifically for a catch light. That's exactly, um, yeah. We use like rigs where we put like lighting rigs and, and they're parented to the either the head of the character yeah. or they're parented to the camera. And they adjust their intensity based on the, um, the um, glancing angle or the normal angle. They intensify or de-intensify depending on where the camera is, where the head is, where the eyes are pointed. And I know anime uses this as well, this technique where they really want to show emotion and really want to um, create a sense of heightened drama. Uh, in anime, we have, of course, the eyeballs that all of a sudden become these <laughs> quivering liquid things. But it's, it's a technique. It's something that we've been using in film for a while, and, and, and anime uses it. And uh, I suspect um, we'll have to use it, it, be aware of it in VR. But you're right, uh, Sean. It's, it's, it's a little trickier when you don't know where the camera's yeah. going to be. Um, I mean, again, you can, all, you can, you can cheat with reflection maps, uh, at least when, when it comes to the eye. Reflection maps are something that is is focused enough that you can get away with using reflection map because you aren't going to see it from an angle where it will look unnatural. Really, um, more for the most part, as long as you've got something in there as a catch light in the eye, um, I, I would think a reflection map should solve 
most instances of that. I'm just trying to rack my brain to see if there's anything, any, any horrible glaring fault, faults in that. And no, there, and you know, <laughs> and there might be, but, but my, my point is to get people thinking about that and, yep. and, and, and elevate and their, their VR animations up, up a few notches. And this is, these are some great things to be thinking about that while we're wrapping our head around sort of frame rate, frame count and polygons, it's like you can't lose, lose sight of, of, of some of the basics. It just, the, the rules are a little different in VR. That's all. We just yeah, don't know what the rules are yet. Well, yeah, and then that's the the problem is you you just don't know where someone's looking, and mm-hmm. you can take steps to to minimize uh, where they are and where they're looking. You can you can lock them in a in a physical position, but you if you lock their head in place, you've kind of defeated the entire purpose of VR. So uh, you're gonna la- they're they're gonna be able to look around uh, even if they are locked in a in a physical you know X Y Z position. They've still got rotational view available to them. Um, or what's the point in making it VR at all? Um, <laughs> but uh, so yeah, I mean, once you've got you know, we've talked about direction, we've talked about intensity, um, and we touched on color, which is essentially what that color temperature is. Mm. But then you can also, of course, go outside of the natural um, temperature color ranges of light uh, and start coloring your light um, for dramatic or special effect purposes, you know, whether you want to make it green or ultraviolet or, you know, however you want to do that. Uh, And then you get into uh, color theory and uh, color mixing, um, which is probably a little farther than we want to get here. But again, it's something you can think about. And in the, in the context of this podcast, uh, as you start color mixing, you just need to remember that why you have to you have to circ, you know circle around or or in, look at the different angles that you've allowed your you're allowing your viewer because uh color mixing is something that can look horribly uh as my one teacher would call it marmalade um when it goes bad uh and you want to make sure that you've controlled yourself and controlled it so that uh, sure, your your character that you've just lit with you know a three point lighting system with some interesting colors looks great, but as you walk around, some of the spill light or some some of the light that you you weren't thinking about uh, hasn't mm. gone muddy somewhere. I uh, oh. you, you you lost me at marmalade. I, I'm trying to think. <laughs> Did he say it with a British accent? And maybe it looks marmalade. <laughs> it, 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 uh, it, it was, it's 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 sort of a see through muddy is is, is oh, okay. <laughs> What he saw. Um, oh, I see. You know, yeah. If yeah. you're if you're if you're mixing your color, your paint colors, it turns muddy. If you're mixing light, it turns marmalade because it's you can still see through it, but it doesn't look especially. You know pleasing. what? That's good because it actually is kind of explains back earlier on tonight I, in the show. I was I was sort of explaining how sometimes when you mix uh, color temperatures, they they just don't work, and that's actually maybe not necessarily what he was talking about, but that's certainly and sometimes I've seen it done poorly. Where you just oh, lose all you lose all contrast and uh, you lose all interest and your your mind is kind of flipped. You see a sunshine, but everything looks blue or the other other way around. It just doesn't make really make too much sense. What do you see that's interesting in uh, coming up in, in in now VR is really not your thing, but I know you're a, a total nerd when it comes to this kind of stuff. I mean, I, I, and I mean that in a, in a complimentary way, of course. Absolutely. What are you seeing coming up in VR that's kind of got you excited? Like what what what, what in the hardware has kind of caught your eye? Or I, I'm gaming? actually. What do you think? Uh, I'm actually a little opposite you. I know you were kind of poo pooing the uh, the Hololens and the uh, augmented reality stuff earlier on. Go on. Um, 
that's really the way for for me and my and and my my world augmented reality is really uh sort of what i see helping my life and um i'm not much of a gamer uh and i think my kids will probably end up being huge vr adopters mm. um i don't think at the initial price that's uh you know the cost of an another entire game system that it's going to happen. <laughs> and now here's the dad's uh, the dad's the dad's guide to podcast now. <laughs> but uh, but for me, um, I see the potential of augmented reality. Um, uh, but in in daily life, you know, I don't want to be the the Google Glass uh, geek, but um, I see no. the potentials for that being fantastic. Um, if I walk into a theater, mm-hmm. um, there's a good chance I've got you know a few hundred lights up in the air. Um, and the idea of being able to walk around and have information about each one of those lights presented to me as I walk through the theater and I'm, and I'm checking my system and, and, you know, making sure it all works, um, is just phenomenal. I, I, I can't wait for the day that, oh, that see, AR I'm going to, I'm going to take that, that a notch further in that one of my, uh, pet projects is I'm really interested in Internet of Things and I've been dabbling back, getting back into Arduino and sort of building an oblique, beeping beeps and blinking lights and nothing nothing too sophisticated but what you're describing is uh, right up exactly in what work i know general electric and and honeywell some so they're doing some really interesting things with with devices on this internet of thing notion and i can just imagine all your lights having a small you know they all have an ip address and they have a sort of a status of of their of you know, bulb life or, uh, it's actually where we're going. Yeah. Um, and so you I, walk I, into a room and <laughs> so you combine AR with you know, augmented reality with internet of things where, yeah, you can look around a room and, oh yeah, that's incredible. Actually. Yeah. I mean, uh, at this point, like I've, I'm already at a point now where if I'm troubleshooting a system, hmm. uh, I carry a wireless router, uh, and a, uh, and, and, and an ethernet box around with me so that I can plug in and my phone controls, you know, uh, up to, you know, 2000 lights, um, uh, for, for troubleshooting purposes. I it's not something I'd run a show off of, but yeah. uh, it's, um, it's, it's a great way. And, and, you know, adding to that, the, the f- a feedback system, you know, where I've got a visual, a visual feedback, uh, on glasses and yeah, I'm sold. Uh, VR, I, I, I definitely see potential. Uh, I know I mean, the gamers are going to take it there first, mm-hmm. uh, between gamers and the adult industry, that's where all the uh, uh, initial rush of development, I'm sure, will come from. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I'm I'm uh, a little more uh, hesitant on that uh, front, and I'm I'm just sort of interested to see where it goes. You know, it's funny. Back in the um, well, 80s, I guess I'm, we're talking Commodore 64 days. I, they had a user port on the back of it, and I built the system where. Um, it would it, it, the user port would send it out a ping to what I I now would call an IP address, and I built a little DA, just a little um, a little motor that would slide a volume up or down, increment one notch or decrement one notch, and I would I would use it to control lights and on old Connor sixty four with like just a, a mess of wires. This was back in the assumption days. I just wanted I kind of using that as a as a hook to sort of give a shout out to some technically. Um, Real innovators that we worked with, Sean, and that we know. Of course, I'm talking about your dad, Ron yep. Stevens. I'm giving That's a shout out to Ron. He, uh, 
did some amazing things with absolutely uh, no money and uh, a lot of passion. So I just wanted to give a shout out to your dad, actually. I think he influenced, a, well, I know he influenced a lot of people. And one of the people that I know he he uh, pushed really hard to uh, develop uh, really good things was was my dad also, too. Absolutely. And that's the connection. That's a shout out to Assumption back in Windsor because uh, we have a long history. And I'm, I'm just so so happy that we're able to sort of connect on this level and sort of reminisce about the old days and how we were hacking away at uh, doing our thing back in, in high school. And here we are now. And you're it's just you, hearing you talk about the augmented reality walking around with an eye, with a phone addressing lights and just thinking about where we were uh, 30 yeah. years ago is, is, is just astonishing. Sitting, sitting up on top of the, the ceiling, uh, the drop ceiling in a uh, high school cafetorium. <laughs> uh, Don't point- say... Point, pointing lights at uh, the you know giant two floor two story stairway that somehow they managed to safely rig up. Um, for I were you were you on Man of La Mancha? Man of La Mancha, absolutely with the drawbridge. <laughs> two, two story, two story, raising and lowering st- uh, staircase in a cafetorium theater, yeah. uh, lit primarily from on top of a drop uh, drop ceiling with yeah. students. Students uh, in, in the drop ceiling, uh, <laughs> the drop suspended ceiling. by uh, chains and tube and uh, and uh, four bay uh, half inch plywood. Yep. Um, uh, let's not spend too much time talking about that because there, this this could come back to haunt uh, any number Statue, of statute of limitations. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I, actually, it's funny. Yeah, I'm gonna, I am going to just for the audience. Just we're having a moment. I'm sorry. We're maybe, but I, I'm going to say I know I have pictures of you, and I know there's pictures of me. I don't know if we have any pictures of us because there's a bit of an age difference. We were maybe 15 years apart, maybe. Uh, if, if there was pictures of me, uh, me and you, it was probably uh, various technicians holding me in a uh, bundle yeah. of, of blankets. <laughs> That's uh, what I'm thinking. Yeah, there was a bit of an age difference, <laughs> but we were we have both we have both been on uh, a number of stages together over the years. And wow, Absolutely. what a it's incredible to hear you uh, hear you tell where we are in terms of lighting right now, and I, I, I think we're we're moving into sort of another brave new world in terms of real time uh, interactive animation and how we light that is going to be uh, who knows who knows, but we're going to be definitely calling on the experience of of, of people like you, extremely talented technicians like yourself, and uh, trying to transpose some of that knowledge that you've got into this this wonderful world of virtual reality that we're trying to figure out. Is there anything else? Actually, this is, I'm sure this is, I'm, I know there are going to be people that are going to want to know more about this and I, I'd love to have you back on the show, but Sean, how would people get in touch with you? Uh, well, um, I answer all sorts of emails. Uh, I'm uh, also on Twitter. Yeah. What's your Twitter? Uh, handle? I'm actually at dark elf LX, um, D A R K E L F L X. Which is the the short form for for lighting cues in a in a prompt in a prompt script? Outstanding. So that's excellent. Um, I'm going to cut you loose, buddy. We went a little long, actually. It's it's amazing how time flies really 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 quickly. But uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, thank you for the show. Uh, again, if anybody has any questions, uh, hook them up on Twitter. And if you have any questions for our show here, it's RD. XYZ on Twitter or rd.xyz uh, on the web. Uh, my name is Rick Delishney. Reach out. Let me know what you think of the show. And uh, definitely subscribe to our podcast and make sure that you get all the episodes and check out all our back episodes. And uh, tell your friends. Retweet. Let everyone know what we're doing here. Uh, trying to give uh, animators a, uh, an educated uh, new perspective on something that uh, we're all trying to figure out as we go along. Thanks again, Sean. You too. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye.